And that faithful remnant of Israel, that faithful remnant of Israel known as Judah, can look back at their origin story at this particular chapter. And as they do so, they might wince a bit, but you know what? So do we all when we look at our origin story and how it is that we came to a place of righteousness. It was, it was not pretty to see the way that it had to be made. It was not pretty, me having to watch videos of myself dancing uh, last night, later on. Uh, they weren't included, by the way, in the montage this morning. It's not pretty watching sausage being made, but the end product you know, is, is pretty glorious. And this is what we're going to be able to see in the most righteous of all God's people, the people of Judah. But here is their story. And so, turn with me over to, Gen uh, to Genesis uh, 38 as we look at this particular story. The title of my sermon today is, Who's Your Daddy? That will become more apparent as the story moves on. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. But by the way, as Judah leaves his brothers and as Tim had preached last week, what he had left at that time was a ruse perpetrated upon their father Jacob or Israel. And this charade that they had brought was to take Joseph's coat of many colors and dip it in goat's blood and bring it to their father Jacob. And Judah is the one who comes up with this scheme. And as he comes up with the scheme, Judah then says something very profound to his father Jacob. He invites him to investigate or scrutinize. Nikar is the Hebrew word that he uses. That word will come into play through this chapter. But Judah is the one who says to him and, and says this word from his mouth. Scrutinize, investigate this robe and tell me if it doesn't happen to be your son Joseph's robe. Whom they had sold into slavery, but to cover all of that up, they, they, they provide it to Jacob. So as to be able to cover over their sins of what they had done to their brother. And so after having invited this investigation, we now pick up on Judah in this story. So he left his brothers and he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. So Judah is now cavorting with Hira and Shua. They are both Canaanites. What's the big deal with that? The Canaanites have such a debased evil that has clung to them that God has already said that these people who have polluted the land are going to have to be completely removed so that I can really be able to extend my plan for mankind through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now through Jacob's descendants, including Judah, my plan for mankind is to be a blessing, to use this lineage, to use these people to be a blessing and extend that blessing to all people. God, in his depth of love, desiring to gather all people to himself after the fall to be able to give redemption. It's the heart cry of God to be able to provide that. And he's doing it through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, etc. But if, and this explains a very big plot narrative here. Why is it that all of a sudden at the end of Genesis, 
God's people are going to have to go down into Egypt. Why do they end up in Egypt for 400 years? Because God begins to realize if my people stay in the land of Canaan, they are not going to get persecuted, but instead they're going to get polluted. And we begin to see the pollution right here. Instead of them having an effect of holiness upon the people around them, the effect of the people around them is completely debasing and erasing their holiness. And and Judah, prime example of this, now begins to have deeper relationships, not with his brothers and with his own family, but now with these two fellows, Hira and Shua. And moving on, let's see what happens as a result of that. He met the daughter of of a Canaanite. We don't know her name. He married her and made love to her. By the way, the way that this is stated in the original language is not too different from Genesis 34, where the Shechemites see Dinah, the, the, the daughter of Jacob, and it basically says they saw her, they took her, and they had sex with her. It's, it's very similar wording here, where Judah sees this daughter of a Canaanite, he sees her, he's attracted to her, he takes her, and he has sex with her. And again, the wording in the NIV is, let's say, a little bit cleaned up. But it says, he married her and he made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. Ur is basically a word that means wicked. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. Onan means um, virile or fruitful, ironically. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for uh, for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So these will be the two main characters now that we encounter in this narrative. Jacob and Tamar. Tamar is wed to Jacob's son and... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, verse 7. So the Lord put him to death. How he did so, we don't know. Did the Lord strike him down? We don't know. We just know that maybe God perhaps allowed it. But one way or another, Er ends up dead. Why is this important? Because Er is married to Tamar. Tamar is now a widow. And according to custom at that time, a custom that would be codified later in the law... In Deuteronomy 25, a custom called Leverite marriage. That if you are the father of a son who is, is married and your son dies, well now that, that widow, your daughter-in-law, is now extremely vulnerable in society. If her own family cannot take care of her from that point on, then you, the father-in-law, must become a father to the widow, a defender of the widow. But what you must do, though, is provide for the widow. And the way that you provide for the widow, according to the Leverite custom, and Leverite just means brother-in-law, is that you are to take the next son, the next brother in line, and you are to give him in marriage to that widow. And thereby allowing her to continue the family line that the son who died would not be able to see continued. And also to provide protection and social justice. God is highly concerned 
with social justice. We hear this more times than we can count through the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 68, I think it's in verse 5, it describes God as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Why was Judaism so attractive to the nations around them? Because none of them knew a God of this kind of social justice. They didn't know of a God who cared for the alien, who cared for the orphan, or who defended the widow. That was unheard of at that time. Look at other laws, look at other customs, look at other cultures. Hammurabi's code, it can't hold a candle to the beautiful justice that is seen in the Old Covenant. You say, oh, but the Old Covenant seems to be so harsh. Well, yes, compared to your 21st century sensibilities, but try and take a look at it in comparison to the milieu or, or, or according to the, uh, the, the culture, uh, climate of that time. And we see something that is groundbreaking, jaw-dropping in a God who defends the widow. But this is God's depth of his heart. And to not defend the widow is such an offense before God. And Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, Judah right now is about to go down a path where he decides that he is not going to care for the widow. This was meant to be his charge. He was meant to be the one who protects him in, in his arms. Tamar was to be protected by her father-in-law. She was to then receive Onan, which, which he did. Uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, Judah, I got to keep these guys straight. Judah then gives Onan to Tamar, but Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord as well. And while he went ahead and exploited the fact that she was given to him as a wife, he exploited it for his own sexual pleasure, but did so in such a way that she would not bear children. And it's a, it's a graphic scene to be able to show the depravity of what had gone on as the Canaanites had begun to pollute the people of God. And the depth of the wickedness really began to sink to new lows among God's chosen people who were meant to not only be blessed, but ultimately to launch blessing on God's reclamation project for all peoples. And if it's going to keep going down this path, God's going to have to do something radically different. Which is, which is why Egypt will come as the purifying furnace for God's people later on. Anyway, as this narrative progresses, Tamar is now in a very vulnerable position. Ur has died, her first husband. Onan has died, despite treating her rather shabbily. And now there's one more son, Shelah. But Shelah is a bit young to be married. And so what Jacob, uh, Judah, what Judah, <laughs> what Judah says to Tamar is, Sheila's a bit young, give him a couple of years to grow up and to be of marrying age. And when he's of marrying age, of course, I will do right. I will practice social justice. I will recognize Leverite law. And I will give you Sheila to make sure that you are not a woman who is exposed or vulnerable to the society about you. Because by the way, if, if you don't have a husband at this time, then you are the most marginalized of society if you're a woman. It's a very difficult position to be in. T today, it might be some other recognition that either makes you part of the people who have arrived 
or have not arrived. Perhaps it's being homeless that, that, that makes you marginalized in society today. If that's a, a good parallel for you to think of, well then maybe that's the category that you would put Tamar in as she is now homeless, waiting for a home. She is now a widow waiting for the, really the, 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 the due that is due her in Sheila to be made her husband. But she begins to realize that Judah is not going to protect her anymore. And Judah is basically going to say to her, don't call me, I'll call you with regard to my third son. And she's left adrift in that black hole, not hearing anything, wondering what's going to occur. But then as Sheila comes of age, she realizes he's old enough now and I'm not hearing anything. Maybe I need to call him. Maybe I need to intervene. And so in verse 12, we see that begin. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira the Adamalite went with him. And, and so he's, he's kind of back with his old buddies as a widower. And as he's back with his old buddies, the Canaanites, the depravity that was attending to that sort of relationship seems to pop up again. When Tamar was told, verse 13, your father-in-law, that is Judah, is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, and now she begins to concoct a scheme here. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. By the way, Judah is now far from his family. Judah is immersed in Canaanite corrupt culture. And, and he is now going to encounter Tamar. Why, why did she do all of this? For she saw, in verse 14 at the end, for she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, that is Tamar with the veil, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. This is how low he gets. Almost as though he's going to a grocery store and just happens to see at the city gate a prostitute. And without any kind of pause of conscience, it's like, oh, a prostitute. Hey, you know what? Why don't you, why don't you come on along here? I'm going to sleep with you. This is the line of God's blessing. This is their origin story. This is Judah. As you would read about him as the, as the tribe of Judah, as God's remnant faithful. And as you read about your own origin story, here it is. But look at what goes on here. Not realizing, verse 16, that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me? To sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, well, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. These may have all been attached, by the way. Uh, he may have had a, a, a walking staff 
with some sort of a cap to it of a seal. A seal was the thing that identified him. He would mark it in um, you know, some, some sort of wax when he had an official document. Uh, but, but it was as though it were he was giving her his social security card and license. It was, I mean, is that big a deal of an identifying mark at this point in time? So she's basically saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you give me your social security card and license? So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So she's gone. And of course, Judah's going to want his identifying marks back. So he's going to hurry to get the goat down to her. And once the goat is presented to this prostitute, as far as he knows, he'll get his license back. And he'll get his social security card back. Meanwhile, Judah sent the goat by his friend, the Adamalite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at NAM? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this goat, but you didn't find her. In other words, he's like, I did right. You know, crazy, right? To think that I did right. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned. Oy. But by the way, th this is a, um, an unusual form of discipline. Even once the Old Covenant is codified, there are provisions for immorality. And it is death, but it is not death by burning. This is torture unto death that he wants. And so at this point in time, he has become quite broken in his bitterness and rage. And, and I'll get to that in a minute in my first point. But, but take note that this idea of take her and burn her. And by the way, in, it's a particularly harsh in the Hebrew. There are just two words that are uttered by him. And it's basically just grab, burn, that he says. And that's, that's all that the sentence is. As she was being brought out, and now we have a very dramatic scene. It's as though as she's being drug out to her burning, she has a last second ploy. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize. Same word, by the way, that Judah used to Jacob when he said, see if you recognize, scrutinize, identify, investigate this robe of many colors. See if it is Joseph's robe. Same word now that she uses. See if you investigate, scrutinize this social security card, this, this license, this signet. And tell me, tell me whose it is. And she says, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Well, Judah 
recognized them. Same word. And said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he named him Perez. Perez means to break out. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zera. Zera means red or scarlet. So as we look at this passage, I want to look at a couple different points here. Uh, point number one, there's just two points. The danger of self-flattery. And this is the danger that Judah is under here. And it's a deep danger. He has stuck his head in the sand with regard to his children. We all have blind spots. Massive blind spots in our lives. And praise God that we can be in fellowship where a lot of times that can be mediated or alleviated. But nonetheless, Judah had a blind spot where he thought of himself as a man of honor, a man of prestige, a man walking with his own staff and cord and signet ring, a man that was of great possessions and sheep. And here, as he thinks of himself so highly, the other thing that often attends to one thinking of himself highly is, you think you're a pretty good parent. And even if your kids go astray, you can't admit that it was your parenting that brought on what went on with your kids. And clearly, Judah has not produced the best lot of kids. When his, when his first son is known as wicked, and his second son is, is equally wicked, and both put to death by the Lord. But how does he then validate himself, which we all try to validate ourselves? We all try to walk around justifying ourselves. If not, then there's a rather steep burden that is placed upon us. But if that burden is on us, it's not for no reason. It's ultimately so that God can refine us. But if, if we continue rather than to allow the burden to have its effect on us, if instead what we try to do is stick our head in the sand and really just try to have no, nothing much more than the experience of, of validation, well, here's what Judah did. He blamed Tamar for how his sons went astray. Why else would he say, take and burn? It's as though it was because of that woman. It's that woman that my sons were put to death. Here's, here's the evidence. Son number one ends up with that woman. He ends up dead. Son number two ends up with that woman put to death. What's the common factor between the two? Not me and my parenting. It's her. It's her and her influence on my wonderful sons. Because we all see our children as just an extension of ourselves. And to admit to himself that no, his sons were put to death because he brought them into Canaanite corruption, because he parented them, having been informed by the culture and the customs of Canaanite corruption, rather than bringing them up in the way of the Lord, that was just too difficult for him to try to really grasp onto. 
And now he is about to not just stick his head in the sand, but in this self-validation, he is about to harden his heart to a point of no return. Because if what happens as he wants it to really does happen, if he's going to continue to validate himself, he is going to have to so harden himself that he'll never have a chance of a breakthrough. Never have a chance for a Perez, a breakthrough in his life. And if he were able to really give the order to have Tamar taken and burned, at the end of the day, he would have to justify that cruelty to himself and to others and to his last son, Sheila, as well. And the only way that he could do that is to come to a place of no return. By the way, we've all probably been on that journey in our lives. And I don't know where you're at in your journey right now, but we're often trying to justify and validate ourselves. We're often trying to look at ourselves with righteousness, that we want to view ourselves as righteous, righteous before one another, righteous in our integrity, in our business dealings, righteous in our integrity with our relationships and even righteous before God. It didn't matter where I was in my life, whether I was steeped in the vomit and beer of my fraternity, I still found a way to validate myself, to still view myself as, yeah, I did bad things, but I'm a good guy. And it's what we always do is that we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. We make the outsides of everyone else have to conform to righteousness, but we only let the insides of ourselves have to conform to righteousness. And even though the track record of ourselves may fail again and again, but I'm a good guy. Even after what I did last night in that fraternity bash, brawl, and flood of dissipation. But I'm a good guy. I still have a good heart about me. It, if I could do that as a depraved fraternity guy, how much more could I do it once I came out of that culture? Once I now was in the corporate world, once I'd stopped drinking as heavily, once I'd stopped cursing as I had done. Well, what about now, now that, my, now that I, I go to barbecues and talk about the weather and, instead of lying to girls to, to try to seduce them. Now that I'm a respectable man with a, a wife and 2.1 kids and a Volvo. Well, how much more could I then justify myself? And, and that's the dangers of living in polite society is that it's very easy to begin to justify yourself. Judah was justifying himself as a man living in polite society versus that Tamar prostitute who has become impregnated in her prostitution, in her immorality, and in her immorality, she deserves to die. I am more righteous than she. And I am now validated that I'm not the one who screwed up my kids. She's the one who did it. And my goodness, where he's about to go is a very frightening place. And, and maybe you're at a place right now where your actions are in the dark. And they're very far from righteous. But they're in the dark. 
But your intentions, you, you still validate. But I'm a good girl. You know what? I, I really want to do good in the depth of my soul. It's just that I keep doing wrong. You know, but I, I know one day my outsides will catch up with my insides. Now, that's a dangerous place. Extremely. And it's a slippery slope because you're probably only one step away, just as Judah was here. One step away from doing something that will be that point of no return. Where the crust around your heart will be so thick as it's hardened that there'll be no getting through, sadly. Judah was about to burn this woman. You may be about to engage in a immoral relationship. To actually take that step. A step from which there may be no return. Because you're going to have to justify that relationship and validate it somewhere. You may be about to do something so deceitful in your business dealings or in your marriage. You may be about to do something so harsh and over the top with your children that in order to justify why you did such a thing, you're going to have to harden your heart beyond what you could ever imagine. You're going to have to compromise on Jesus to such a degree that to be able to justify yourself, you may end up at a place of no return. But here's praying that you're not there yet. And here's celebrating that Judah was not there yet. And just as he is about to, to be, boy, oh boy, hardened beyond repair, there is this intervention of investigate, scrutinize, and let's just see if it's a little bit more than you thought as you consider yourself. And my second point is the beauty of getting busted. <laughs> Dramatic scene, as I mentioned. Tamar on her way to the pyre, to the, 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 the funeral pyre of, of uh, fire that would burn her. And on her way, 11th hour, attempt at a reprieve, she sends the signet ring that so identified Judah as the man that actually had impregnated her. And as the signet ring arrives before Judah, what are the instructions? Scrutinize. Investigate, Judah. Scrutinize and investigate. See if these are... Nikar, the word again in Hebrew. Nikar, Judah. And see whose these are. Maybe it will enlighten you. And as he looks at it, he did. It says, and he scrutinized. And he investigated. And at that moment, it's as though the scales fell from his eyes. And praise God that the crust was able to melt away from his heart. And in an instant, he was able to recognize, she is more righteous than I. Despite what he had constructed of an image of himself and the image of her. The image of himself as the good dad who tried his best and was a respectable man of the society versus that harlot, that, that woman of whoredom that has corrupted my kids. And, and by the way, after one slept with her and died and another slept with her and died, 
That was the evidence? No, apparently. Because a third person slept with her and didn't die. And who was that? Judah himself. So, so much for, you know, kind of controlling the variables in this thing and doing a scientific in inquiry of this. Uh, suddenly, it can't be the common denominator of Tamar because sleeping with Tamar apparently doesn't kill everybody. And maybe the common denominator in this situation is Judah himself. And he says this profound thing, she more righteous than I. Not that she is guiltless and I am guilty. He recognizes the, the mess of her. But she at least was striving for social justice in her immorality, but was striving for social justice. I, in my immorality, was getting ready to trounce social justice, to flout before the eyes of God, his very heart, and to continue to indulge myself with sexual immorality on top of that as well. It's only when God intervenes in your life and you know that you've been beautifully busted when you can look at the people that you used to look down on and be able to say, oh my goodness, how did I ever look down on them? As I see them now through the eyes of exposure, through the work of the Holy Spirit that has convicted me, now that my blind spot, at least in this one particular area, is removed, how could I have ever considered myself more righteous than they? They are clearly more righteous than I. You know, as God was opening my eyes, that was the great gift that came to me, is that I really, I think like many of you, came to the realization as, as I was ready to be redeemed, but not until I was ready to be redeemed, I, I needed to come to the place where I recognized I just may be the worst sinner ever reclaimed by Jesus Christ. I praise God that he was able to bring such conviction and asked me to go ahead and scrutinize your life. Go ahead and investigate it. Because the way that God brings us into redemption, the way that God grabs us just before we go over that abyss, that point of no return, is that he brings a painful, eye-opening confrontation with a difficult truth, a truth about ourselves. A truth about ourselves in relationship to God as well. And it happens in our initial conversion, but it also happens along our walk as well with God. And it's always, a, it's always something that we don't look forward to, but once it's occurred, we praise God for the beauty of it. Because it's always a breakthrough in your walk with God. Have you had that recently? Have you been able to so sophisticatedly uh, construct your life in such a way to fend off any confrontation where you really need to investigate yourself? If you're seeking God, have you tried to maybe even put off the full frontal view of what it is that God needs to show you? Have you perhaps even filtered from those that are trying to help you what's really going on in your life? If so, you'll never know the beauty of being busted, the celebration of being busted. 
Later in life, when you mark time, you mark time from these moments. These are the spiritual pinnacles of my life. When I was sufficiently busted by the Holy Spirit to be able to see how far afield I had drifted. Those are the mountaintop experiences. Even though they feel like valleys, you realize that at those very moments, they are just the opposite. They are launching you into a beautiful pinnacle in your walk with God. So how can we maybe know ourselves better? How is it that as you sit here now, could we have the signet ring brought before you? Or the cord? To be able to say, go ahead, investigate. Scrutinize. Take a careful look. Maybe this will tell you a little something about yourself. Just as Judah had that Homer Simpson duh moment, maybe some of these considerations might help you. And if any of these in some way touch your heart, well, don't let it go. Don't stumble upon the intervention of God only to brush yourself off and get back on your way again without it having any effect. Let's consider how you can avoid self-delusion. Well, number one, even though it says number two, I must have messed that up somewhere. Uh, how you act, here's, here's how you can tell who you really are and it, rather than to, to justify yourself. How you act when you're upset, sick, or tired. Well, you say, yeah, but I was sick and tired, so it doesn't count. No, all that did was take away all of the conditioned ability that you had to filter yourself. And by taking that away, your real heart was able to be exposed. It's, it's when I'm frustrated or tired that I often hear from Lindsay, Dad, do you hear yourself right now? And that's because what is really in my heart is coming out at those very moments. How about number three? Or two? Who you are when no one is looking. Who are you when no one of spiritual discernment is with you? Who are you at work? Who are you when you're shopping? Who are you as you peruse the magazine aisle? Who are you when you're on the internet? Who are you? If you want to really know whether I'm just a really good guy, well, this is a good way to know whether you're really just a good guy. Who have you been when no one's looking? How do you speak to people when they're not around? Or speak about people? What do you say about them? Are you as encouraging and charitable about them when they're not around as you are when they're in your presence? Number five, how do you receive criticism? That'll tell you a lot about your heart, whether there's humility or whether there's pride. That's a pretty good litmus test right there, a good on-off switch of, of whether there's humility or pride, is that you've received criticism. And by the way, what if 80% of that criticism is off base, but 20% of it is on the mark? Do you address the 80? Or do you embrace the 20? and say, can you tell me more about that? I think this feedback is going to be rather important to my life. Another good way is your prayer life. What's your prayer life been this week? 
Again, whether you really are just a good gal who really loves your Jesus. Really, you know what? My life is all about Christ. I'm all about trusting in the Lord. Well, then the better indicator is, is not those words. But what has your prayer life looked like? Here's a good one. Nobody likes talking about it. But let's go ahead and pull up the Bank of America website. Or whatever else it might be. Let's go ahead and look at the record of spending. What does that say about you? Are, are you different from the people of this world? Or are you really not much different from the people of this world? Are the first fruits of all that is coming our way really going to God because I'm all about Jesus? Or is that not really the case? Is, is there a trust in mammon? Is there a lust for materialism? Uh, is, is there a debt that, that, that is massive because of a materialistic lifestyle. Very, very convicting, for sure, to even be able to have to consider these things. But again, if there's conviction here, let's not let this go. Let's really make sure that we're being refined because this refinement is not going to leave you wanting. This refinement is going to be a hilltop experience for you in the Lord. How about your internet browsing history. What if we were to pull that up? God forbid if it's blank, because it means not only is your browsing history ugly, but you actually think that you're pulling a fast one on God by erasing your history. And God was watching you go ahead and erase your history and mourning the fact that you're even doing that. Again, if any of this is in any way working through the Holy Spirit to bring you to a place of praise God. Praise God that that's the, the, the right place where He wants you to go. Um, I, I want us, as, as we consider this, and by the way, before I get to this last charge, it says in the end, Judah, who had the ultimate exposure moment, he investigated and he saw who he really was. And when you finally see yourself in the bright light of day, it says, and he did not sleep with her again. That, by the way, is not the radical deliverance of Judah. Judah was impacted so much more than this. Because there's going to be one other time where there's going to be a recognition and an investigation that will involve Judah. And it will come when Joseph meets his brothers, when Joseph is no longer recognized by his brothers. And Judah is going to say something around Joseph and he doesn't even know who Joseph is. Again, think of what Judah has already perpetrated. Judah is the one who said, let's go ahead and have Joseph kidnapped and sent down to Egypt. Let's go ahead and do that. He's the one who in this depravity has been so infected by the Canaanites. But when he goes down to Egypt and he is speaking with this ruler of Egypt, who he doesn't know is his brother, and he's speaking with this ruler of Egypt, and the ruler of Egypt says, there is one precious dear brother left. His name is Benjamin. Here's what I want. I want Benjamin to remain here while the others of you can go. Benjamin remains in Egypt as a slave. And the rest of you can go. 
You know what Judah steps up and says at that very moment? If I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant Judah remain here as my Lord's slave. Let me be the slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Do you see the massive difference? Do you see how it is that God redeemed Judah? How it is that God can allow the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew to go through Judah? Even though this is his origin story, his origin story can be reclaimed by God. Your origin story can be reclaimed by God to be one of infinite glory, of wondrous honor. It's what God is wanting to do for you. Judah, Tamar, and Perez are listed in Matthew in the most honored list in the Bible. The genealogy of Jesus our Lord. Pride of place in the Bible of this family, Judah, Tamar, and Perez. Why? Because God took the effort to shake him by the lapel and really make sure that he would no longer go down that road of heart hardening, but to have it disrupted by the grace of God so that he could become a man repentant. So that he could be a man who could go back to God. Repentance is not something you do to go back to God. Repentance is going back to God. That's what God wants from everyone here right now. If any of this has brought conviction your way, well then take this closing charge. Pray for the Spirit to expose and deliver you from your blind spots. And while you do so, enlist a spiritual friend for help on this.